today we're starting a new series called Conversations with Jesus. And uh, it, it, it reminded me, it took me back to a time where I had the opportunity to, to meet a man that you've probably never heard of. His name is Dr. John Hurston. Dr. John Hurston was a missionary, he and his wife, to Liberia in the 1950s. And um, he went to Liberia and, and God moved in, in one of the most powerful ways maybe he's ever moved on earth. And when the president of Liberia was reelected um, for a third term, they, he, the, the president was so moved, he called a national inaugural revival. <laughs> Can you imagine that? And John Hershey and a few other people were invited to come in and hold revival meetings across the nation of Liberia in different places. And one of the meetings was so large, it was billed the largest public gathering in the nation's history up until that point. So thousands of people were coming out. And not just that, the national press reported that through those meetings that lasted three months, over 40,000 sick people were prayed for, and the national press reported 90% were healed. So that's 36,000, if you're doing the math. And the national press reported they were healed blind people, lame people, deaf people, mentally ill people. The national press called it the most successful revival in world history. That's what the national press called it. Thousands were saved. And in time, Dr. Hurston moved to, he and his wife moved to Vietnam and served there for a while. And there's a whole other story there. And ultimately moved to South Korea. And South Korea was uh, impoverished and there were a lot of problems there. But he met a young man named Paul Young Cho, who, who was, uh, I don't remember if he was atheist or Buddhist or what he was before. But he came to faith in Jesus through the intercession of his mother and a relationship with Dr. Hurston. And Dr. Hurston became a co-pastor and mentor to Paul Young Cho, who later on pastored the largest church in world history, uh, Yodio Full Gospel Tabernacle in Seoul, South Korea. Uh, Dr. Hurston and Paul Young Cho co-pastored until the church was 250,000 people. And uh, some estimates have it at its peak at nearly uh, one million people in one church. Now, a friend gave me, uh, or, or later in Dr. Hurston's life when he was older, Paul Young Cho encouraged him and said, you have to write a book. You have to write about your life and what God's done in your life and through your life. And so he did. And a friend gave me that book. And I read it and I was... I was uh, it so impacted. It was so profound what I read. And uh, my friend who gave me the book said, hey, would you like to meet Dr. Hurston? And I said, yes. <laughs> really? Yes. Like, how, how would that happen? He said, well, he, he lives in Pensacola. He said, we can take a day trip. So we did. We took a day trip to Pensacola. We met Dr. Hurston and his daughter. And uh, we spent the afternoon. We went out to lunch. He was in his uh, 80s at the time. And I thought he was going to have to sit on a pan or something. He was looking under the steering wheel. He still drove, and he drove me around, you know. He's looking through the steering wheel driving. And I see this little guy with these big Coke bottle glasses and looks almost like a cartoon character. And I'm just staring at him because the things that I read, I mean, the things that had happened. And I, I, I still remember that afternoon. It impacted my life so profoundly. And here's what I find about conversations like those. 
They're life-changing. And they expand you. At more than a, more than a book you can read, more than a, a semester in college, they expand you. They, you draw off of them for years. I still draw from that afternoon. Even to this day, I draw meaning from it and value from it because you're looking directly in the eyes of someone who knows things you don't know, who's seen things you've never seen, who, who has wisdom about things that you've never even thought to ask about. Well, imagine for a moment if you were sitting at that lunch table like I was with Dr. Hershon, but imagine instead of if it were him, imagine if it were Jesus. Imagine you were sitting at a table, and when I'm saying Jesus, what I'm saying is imagine God in a human body, the creator of the world, the savior of all mankind. Imagine if you were sitting at that table looking in his eyes. How would that conversation go? Would you, would you just start asking questions? Would you even know what to ask? Or would you wait? Be like, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to sound dumb. I mean, you know, it's Jesus. What would you do? What direction would that conversation flow in? Jesus had many conversations like that when he was on earth. And that's what we're going to talk about in this series. We're going to talk about those conversations and the impact that they had on the people that he met. And as we move toward Easter, um, our staff, our pastors, are actually going to be posting every week. There's so many of those conversations, we can't fit them all in the series, but we're going to be posting each week in our Facebook community group. And if you're not, not part of that, simple. Search it on Facebook, ask to join, and we'll respond. If you're online, you can do that, and uh, you can catch those other conversations with Jesus that won't make it into the series, but you can still follow us that way. So the first one today we're going to talk about is um, Jesus' conversation with John the Baptist. Now, he wasn't called John the Baptist, forgive me for all you former Baptists, because he was Baptist. That didn't come along till later. He wasn't Baptist. He was called John the Baptist because he baptized people. And actually, that's, that's what he was doing um, when Jesus met him. In Matthew chapter 3, 13, Jesus left Galilee and went to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. Now, now pay attention, because that might not sound like a big deal. Jesus went to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. Okay. But look at John's reaction. But John kept objecting and said, I ought to be baptized by you. Right? Like, you're the one, ought to be baptized by you, why have you come to me? So, why was John objecting to this moment? Because it's not how he saw it happening in his mind. I'm, I'm sure he thought, if I ever meet Jesus, I don't think the first thing that's going to happen is, is he's going to come up to me and say, hey John, I need you to baptize me. That doesn't feel right. So here, here's a few thoughts today. i got four thoughts for you from this conversation. Number one, the most difficult truths to accept are the ones that are the most opposite of what we already believe. The most difficult truths to accept are the ones that are most opposite to what we already believe. So it might be against the way you were raised. It might be against what you were taught. It might be against your experience. It might be against what seemed to work up until this point. But I want you to put yourself in John's shoes for a moment. John's people had taught for centuries that one day a Messiah was coming. And he wasn't going to be um, 
a miracle worker. He wasn't going to be a good teacher. He wasn't going to be a prophet. He wasn't even going to be the savior of Israel at that moment. He was going to be the Messiah, the one, the only, God's only begotten son in flesh, the savior of the whole world for all generations, for all times, for all people, and all places, for all of history, right? Like this can't be, do you you see John's mindset about who he's about to meet? And John believed it so much that John lived a sacrificial and primitive life and gave his whole life to that understanding that the Messiah was coming. In fact, he started baptizing people. Because he believed this moment was coming so much now. That invited a lot of questions. Like, what do you mean, John? You're saying prepare the way, the Messiah's coming. And so people started, religious people started to ask, are you Elijah the prophet? Have you been resurrected and you're, you're back and you're talking to us? Are you another prophet? They asked, are you the Messiah? And, and uh, John's answer was, no, 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 no. I'm not even worthy to like unlatch his sandals. I'm not even worthy to touch his shoes. No, you don't understand the guy that's coming. So John could not have, you know, a a bigger mindset about what was about to happen. This is the Savior of the world. So he's thinking, when he comes, there's nothing I can do for him. What can I do for him? He needs to do something for me. He's He's the one, the one. So you can see how this went against everything that John might have thought. You know, I find that uh, truths break into our lives and they kind of shatter our misconceptions about the world. Because sometimes what Jesus does and teaches seems upside down or backwards. Like maybe, maybe um, Jesus has, has shared with you or taught you or you've heard taught that, you know, as believers, what we're supposed to do is take the first 10% of all that we have and we're supposed to give it to Jesus as a recognition that He's our source. Our job's not our source. Our money's not our source. He's our source. And that's so counterintuitive because you say, how if I give away 10% of what I have and, and even do it first, how are my needs more adequately met than if I manage 100% by myself? It's totally counterintuitive. It's opposite of what we've been taught to believe in our own culture and time. Maybe the belief when Scripture says, anyone who wants to save their life must give it away for my sake. But anyone who wants to you know, keep their life will, will give it away and not, and not try to maintain it. You know, I was thinking about that last week. We had a young lady standing right here who is going to South Africa as a missionary. And in our, in our frame of reference, we might be tempted to say to her, what are you, what are you thinking? You're going to give away, like you're going to lose track with all the latest trends and the latest experiences, and you're going to lose track with what's going on in the American culture. And I mean, you're guaranteed as if you're going to be a missionary, your income's going to be limited. It's going to be fixed for life. You're never going to, there are material things you're never going to have access to because of the decision that you're making. You're you're never going to be able to do some things and have some experiences and and all of that. How how are you going to find a husband on the mission field? I mean, our whole frame of reference is taught, no, 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 no. You've got to 
control your life. You've got to direct your life. You've got to do the right things early in life so the right things will happen for you later. That's what we're taught. But it's in direct confrontation with what Jesus said when he said, if you want to keep your life, give it away. And so it's, it's, not, it's not being a suburbanite and looking for the next comfortable, new, flashy experience and building up material goods and building up more money and building up a better life for myself. Jesus says that's a sure way to lose your life. But that's opposite. That's the opposite truth. What about the truth that says forgive and you shall be forgiven? There's nothing more counterintuitive than the thought that when someone wounds you that you're just supposed to let them go. No, 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 no. That's not what we've been taught. That's not what we've experienced. No, what we say is, they wounded me and they must pay for that. I, I will, I'll harbor this against them. I'll get them back by maintaining anger. I'll get them back by sabotaging them. I'll get them back by revenge. Such an opposite truth. How can I possibly be better off by forgiving someone who's wounded me than paying them back? But that's what, these are these shocking truths that Jesus crashes into our life. This truth that when he came to John and said, hey, I want you to baptize me. Shocking. It's opposite. I wonder what shocking truth Jesus has been talking to you about. To me about. To us as a people about. Here's the second thing. All of our objections to Jesus' work seem reasonable at the time, right? Jesus is um, in the Garden of Gethsemane, or before that. He's with his disciples, and a company of soldiers come to arrest him, take him to jail. And the apostle Peter, with no thought, acts, draws his sword, and hacks off a man's ear. You're not taking him. He's the Messiah. Don't you know who he is? And that seemed completely reasonable. Until Jesus grabbed the man's ear off the ground, put it back on his head, and held it there until it healed and grew back to his face. He said, that's not, that's not the way. When Jesus told his disciples earlier, I'm going to die and I'm going to be crucified, the apostle Peter again steps up and says, no, 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 no. No, Jesus. <laughs> you got this wrong. You can't be crucified. You're the leader. Who's going to be the leader? What are we going to do? You're the miracle worker. You're the healer. You're the teacher. You're the one that's leading this revolution through Jerusalem that's going to overthrow Rome. What are we going to do if you're gone? We've got to have you. You can't do that. All of our objections seem reasonable at the time. When I was um, a teenager, I had just come to faith late. I was about 15 years old. Close to 16. And um, I was taught that uh, in our community that men should be um, in control and strong and all the mushy stuff was for the women. You know, you, you, that's how it should be. You should, that's how it should be. And so you learn to be very self-reliant and, and all of that. And uh, one night we were in choir practice. Yes, I sang in the choir, okay? It's our... I know some of you that stand close to me when I sing, you can't imagine it, but it was not a good choir, so I could get in. And I sang in the choir, and we were at choir practice one Wednesday night, and our, our 
pastor over the choir, he's, I don't know how this happened, but he just said, hey, we're going to pray for people. And I don't remember if I volunteered or they volunteered me. I don't remember. But they put me in the chair in the middle of the room. And it was mostly old people and me and, you know, a couple others. And those little old people, grandmas and grandpas, stretched their hands toward me and they put them on my shoulder and back. And just in, a, just in a low rumble, they began to pray for me. And I experienced something I was not prepared for. God's Spirit began to move on me. And He began to communicate His deep love for me. And, and I, I, physically, I, I literally shrunk down. I thought, I was gonna, I thought I'd liquefied and I was going to pour out on the floor. I just shrunk down in the chair and, I, and, I, and I, was, I was only about 16 or 7. I thought, God, what is this? And it was such an overwhelming, um, it was the mushy stuff. It wasn't the thing that I thought that my life should be about. And, and I remember just being so overwhelmed with the love of God. And I said, God, I remember just saying, you have to stop. You have to stop. I can't, I can't handle this. You have to stop. And he did. The feeling immediately lifted. And thank God, as the years went by, he came to me again and poured his love out on me again and again and again. I remember when I was a young teenager, um, I was probably almost 17 at this point. I remember when the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and said, I want you to give up uh, your, friend, your friendship, your friendships. Because I'd only been a Christian like a year. And all of my friendships were non-Christian. I didn't know anybody, really, that was a Christian. And he came to me and said, I want, you to, I want you to give these friendships up. And I couldn't remember being so offended. Saying, God, I did, I've only been, a, you know, I, 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 thought it was, I thought this was about me and you. I didn't know you were going to get in here and start tinkering with other parts of my life. Like, I didn't, I didn't sign up for that. And I can remember that feeling, and it, w- it was undeniable. It was such a clear moment of communication to my heart. I never doubted it, and it was so opposite from anything I'd ever thought before. I had no childhood memory. My earliest childhood memories had one of my friends in it. I did never remember the time of my life without that friend in my life. And now, now God's like, hey, this, you're going a different way. And... And you're gonna to have to, you're gonna to have to move with me. And and these friendships are gonna come into conflict with how I'm moving you. So you're gonna to have to move with me. And then I remember when God called me to ministry. It was a similar thing. I thought I just got saved and I found the greatest thing in the history of the world, and I was just gonna be a good Christian. And I didn't know I was ever gonna be called to ministry. And I remember when God first started laying that thought on me, and I was going, God, I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to do that. Like, I'm not that kind of person. And I just want to walk with you and be with you. And I had, I kind of stiff-armed Jesus sometimes. You ever done that? You ever stiff-arm him? You ever have Jesus come into your life? I wonder what objections to Jesus' work you've had in your life. I wonder what times God's spoken to you and you've said, or maybe I wonder if God might be speaking to you now in this season somehow. I wonder where the resistance points, the objection points are to what God wants to do in your life today. Well, Jesus answered John's objection. 
When he said, no, 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 I I don't need to baptize you, you need to baptize me. In the very next verse, and this is the conversation that impacted John. Jesus replied, verse 15, let it be so now, it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented, what is this conversation saying? I know it seems backwards, I know it seems upside down. But look, here's the third thought. All of Jesus' actions are righteous. All of them. All of them. All of Jesus' words, all of Jesus' actions, all of Jesus' direction are righteous. Now, the reason that Jesus was doing this is it was the beginning of his public ministry. It was a way for him to confirm that this guy out in the desert eating locusts and honey is not insane. He's on to something that everybody else needs to get on to. And when he was saying the Messiah's coming, he was right. Jesus was saying he, was the, he himself was the Messiah, and John the Baptist was right to tell everybody that. And then uh, it was also a foreshadowing of Jesus' baptism of death that would come later. Jesus is only going to do the right thing. It doesn't matter how opposite it seems, or upside down, or backward. I'm so glad... I'm so glad, although I resisted in that moment when that choir gathered around me and prayed, I'm so glad there were other moments of my life I said, God, don't stop until you fill me and it flows out of every part of my life. I'm so glad that Jesus in his grace came back to me again, even though it was not how I thought it should go. And he filled me with love and filled me with love. And now one of my daily prayers is, God, fill me with your heart. God, I want your love in my life. And now rather than resisting, I'm going, come on. Come on, God. I want more. I'm so glad that I followed him in that season into a new community of relationships with people who would train me and mentor me and teach me and disciple me and minister healing to me. My life is profoundly changed. It seems so opposite at the time. And I'm so glad that I followed God in the calling that he's given me. Oh man, it's been hard. There's been challenges and there's all kind of crazy things I could talk about. But man, is it an honor to fulfill the calling that God has given to you and to me. And I'm so, I would have never found it. I would have never found it on my own. But I'm so glad that I followed him. I'm so glad the objections went away. We know, we know that Jesus' actions were right. If you look at the next verse or two, you can see what happened. Look in verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, when? Immediately. Watch. He went up out of the water at that moment. Heaven opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. Heaven opened, the Holy Spirit landed on Jesus like a dove, and an audible voice from heaven spoke and said, This is my Son, whom I am well pleased. I've got a question for you. Had John resisted Jesus' work, would he have ever seen that moment? 
Now think about it. Wait a minute. Had John resisted, had he followed his objection, had he pushed back, would he have heard the voice? Would he have saw the Spirit? Would he have seen the clouds open? Would he have heard the voice? Here's the thought. When we surrender our objections to Jesus, we see a fuller work of the Holy Spirit. Oh, man. I'm suggesting to you that the Spirit's work is hindered by our objections, by our resistance. And I'm also suggesting to you there's more. There's more than we've seen and there's more that we know. Because here's the thing. When we're more connected to our objections than we are connected to the person of Jesus. So here's the question. What are you holding on to tighter today? Are you holding tighter on to your objections? Things aren't how you thought they were going to go. They're not how you thought they were going to be. Jesus is trying to, this crazy religious stuff's getting out of control. What are you holding on to? Are you holding tighter onto that, or are you holding tighter onto Jesus? Because I can tell you, one road leads to a fuller work of the Holy Spirit, and another road leads to greater bondage and less freedom. And that's the question for all of us today. So, here's the last thought. A life surrendered to Jesus is a fruitful life. John the Baptist lived one of the most surrendered lives to Jesus in the entire New Testament. You know his ministry was only six months long? It was six months. And he died young as a martyr. But watch this. 25 years after John died in the city of Ephesus which is a thousand miles away from where John lived Paul the Apostle met 12 disciples and we have a strong indication that those disciples were either greatly influenced by John or maybe even personally discipled by John Look at Acts 13, uh, 19, 3. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? What baptism did you receive? John's. John's. John's baptism. <laughs> a surrendered life is a fruitful life. 25 Years after his martyrdom, a thousand miles away, there are 12 disciples who say, we received John's baptism. Man, do you want to live for eternity or do you just want to live for now? What do you want to do? What do you want to do? You actually do have to decide. You have to decide. You don't have to decide today, but you have to decide. What do you want to do? Do you want to live a fruitful life? Or do you want to live a fleeting American dream? That's the choice. That's the choice that we all have. How would your life be different today if it was surrendered to Jesus? How would your life be different today 
if the objections that you have to Jesus' work were to be were to be surrendered what would your life look like? would you stand with me? I want us to just pray for a moment and if you're online I, I, want, I want you to pray also you might be driving or sitting in your living room but I just want you to pray because I believe in the next few moments on this you know our sleep loss Sunday that the Holy Spirit has some really really important work to do (laughs) so would you just close your eyes with me if you're online our prayer team is there ready to pray with you You can just put your prayer need in the comment section and they'll meet you there. Lord, today, I surrender. God, I pray as we open our heart and mind to you that you would do something that we simply cannot do. We're in the middle of a world at war where people are suffering and dying. Life is changing. Lord, our our anchors are being uprooted. (laughs) So I pray today that you would speak and move. We need something that we can't produce. We need something that only you can do. So God, we ask you for that now. Come in these next few moments and do what only you can do. So as our worship team is coming, I want us to just sing this song together about the blood of Jesus. And as you do, just yield your heart and mind.